This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. How are we? Okay, all right. We're, we're good over here. We're good over here. Y'all, y'all are on your own. I'm just going to um, appreciate that there, Mark. Um, anyways, uh, it's good to see you guys. Looking good. Uh, looking good. Uh, man, if you are new to Austin Life, which I, I see some new faces, um, I, I don't know what your church background is, um, but, but our hope is that this is not, not just a church service. Uh, they're, they're, those are a dime a dozen. Um, our hope is that, um, look, we believe that this, this, this God is real. We believe that he's alive. We believe that he is the king of glory. Um, we believe that when we sing songs, God is more real and tangible and present than, than the songs we sing to UT football or Austin FC, which legit, they sing songs the whole soccer match um, at, at, at an FC game. Anybody been to an FC game? Well, that's impressive. Like, that's, that's what, 90 minutes? Is it 90 minutes plus stoppage time of, stri- of singing, right? Look, if we'll sing a song to a soccer team, which I'm never going to converse with anybody on that pitch, as they call it, um, right? Like, we're not just singing a song like, like karaoke, um, but, but we're singing a song to what we believe to be a living, present king, God. And that changes our perspective, right? That changes how we come into things. That changes how we approach uh, the, the word here. We, we had our theology book discussion this morning, and we're talking about the Bible as the authoritative word of God. That changes how we read this. We don't just read it as an instruction manual or a piece of historical literature. We're coming to this believing that these are God's words given to us, right? So, so if Rosie sends me a text message and she's like, hey, Corey, happy Monday. You're the best ever, right? Yeah, it happens a lot. Um, you know, then, then it's safe to assume, right, that, that Rosie is communicating with me. It's not just some information, right? It's actual communication from another person. That, that's what we have here in written form is communication from God to us. And so we don't just come here and pray or, or, or sing or read the scripture just to, you know, know some information, but we're wanting to know God and to engage with God. That's our hope for this. Our hope is not just to make a church. Our, our hope is to be a people that genuinely know the living God of this world and that our lives are transformed and better because of that. That's my hope for us as we interact with Ruth chapter 3. That's my hope as we, we receive the Lord's Supper and, and worship is that we're not just going through motions, but, but we're communicating, we're interacting with the living God. That's wildly different than just doing a religious service. Right? That, that, that's, there's, some, there's something worthwhile there. And so um, that, that's, that's what I hope we go into uh, Ruth 3 with. is like, all right, God, what, what do you have for us in Ruth chapter 3? All right, why is this here? Why is this story here? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. The, the verses um, should be on the screen. I think I emailed them. Good gracious, I'm panicking now in my own head. Um, I'm pretty sure, I, thank you, Sarah. She's giving me the thumbs up. I did send them in. Um, if you have a phone, right, you can look the scriptures up uh, that way as well. But we'll be in Ruth chapter 3, um, early part uh, of the Old Testament. Um, I want you to think for a second with me. Can, can any of you think of... A, a couple, a uh, marriage, a relationship that's been together for a length of time, right? And that, that you look at them today and you're like, I think they still like each other, right? I, I think they're still in love with one another. Can, can, can you think of a relationship like that? You know, it may be family. It may just be, you know, an old teacher or a mentor, just someone you're like, these people, man, they got it. Like, that's what, I, that's what I want. And those, what is it called? Relationship goals? Hashtag relationship goals? Yeah, there you go. Thank you for that uh, affirmation there. Um, I can't tell you the last time I used a hashtag for anything. Um, but right, here's what I guarantee you you've seen in that relationship. You've seen hesed. That's the, that's the Hebrew word that translates steadfast love. You've seen that in action. If you've seen a relationship that has made it, I don't know, 5, 10, 50 years, right? You've seen hesed. That's the Hebrew word, which is translated most oftenly as, as steadfast love. And there's many facets of steadfast love, right? If you were to put the object here in front of us and name it steadfast love, hesed, you could look at it from multiple sides. And over here, you're going to see, man, this love endures, right? It, it remains. You see, a, you see a couple that's together, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, they've endured some stuff, right? 
Any relationship been over 10? Let me see. Any, anybody over 10 years? Yeah? Am I right? You've endured some stuff. Uh-huh. Come on. I'm getting amen back there. Like, preach. Let's go. Right? You, you got two broken, sinful people that are predisposed to selfishness trying to do this together. Man, there's going to be some conflict. There's going to be some low points that you would have never saw coming. You're like, that's no way. And then one day you look up and you go, oh, shoot. How'd that happen to us, right? Like, but if you're going to get to the other side of that, you've got to remain and endure. That's, that's hesed. That's steadfast love. This, hey, I know that, that everything just hit the fan and our world has crumbled, but I'm not going anywhere. Come on, we want to love like that, right? We want to know that when we're at our worst, which we're going to be at times, that the other person is still going to, going to endure with us. That's, that's one aspect of, of hesed and a, a relationship that's been there for the long run. It, it's had that. It's had to endure. It's had to choose to continue to love. If you look over here at, at hesed, you're going to see, like, man, this is a love that generously gives kindness, right? That, that over the, the weeks and months and years, it continues to give kindness. It's not a one and done, like, hey, I did this nice thing and now I'm done. But like, there's a continual giving of kindness, right? Th those are aspects of, of hesed. It just continues on. It chooses to remain. Another aspect that we'll see from Ruth 3 today is that hesed prefers the other before self. Right? Steadfast love, the biblical term for hesed, prefers the other before self. This is where I think the root of where hesed breaks down is here. Right? The reason that I don't continue to give kindness is because I just don't want to. I'm tired, or you're not reciprocating, and so therefore I'm going to choose my preference over yours. Right? The reason that so many relationships don't endure is the lack of selflessly preferring the other over self. I don't like this anymore. I don't feel in love. I don't like how this is going. And so then I move on to try and find something else that really I just realized I'm in the same boat again not long later, right? But the, the root of why I think hesed, steadfast love, breaks down is that we turn inward and we stop preferring the other. Now, now I just want to clarify and make sure I'm, I'm not talking about you know, an abusive relationship or a relationship of betrayal, right? Th there comes a time even when, when the best thing might be to move on, right? When it's an ongoing abusive relationship, when it's an ongoing relationship of betrayal, what might be best for the other person is to go, okay, this has to end. What might be best for your own well-being so that you can continue to be the best that you can be is to move on. So hear me say, like, I'm not talking about you know, oh my gosh, I'm in an abusive relationship, but pastor said, keep going, right? There is a time. But, but overall, by and large, the number one place where I, I know, and, and let's be honest, you know, where giving love breaks down is when I prefer myself over the other. I want my way over, over your way. That's the root, I believe, and, and that's the focus that we have in Ruth chapter 3. The primary purpose of Ruth, of this little four-chapter book in the Old Testament, is, is to display, is to stir our affections for this hesed type of love. We all desire it, right? That is a human instinct and desire for us. We all want to be loved that way, and I think we all want to be a person that loves that way. I think deep down, we want to be a person that remains. We want to be a person that gives kindly. We want to be a person that prefers the other, right? And so Ruth is written to stir our affections for this hesed, but then to show us that God is the true source, the perfect demonstration of that hesed for us, right? You can have the best relationship or marriage ever, and it's still going to fall short, Right? You can have the, the, the most loving relationship with someone and it's still going to let you down at some point. Right? But God is a God who is faithful to the end. 
right, who, who sees us through and through, where nothing is hidden. They don't, he, God doesn't just know our actions. God knows our motives. God knows what our desires were that, that we never acted on even, and yet he still loves us the same. Right, so Ruth is, is written to draw us to God as the pure, true source of steadfast love, and then to change us to be people who love in the same way. So as we read Ruth, we're, we're supposed to ask, okay, how do I see this hesed? Because that's how God loves me, and now that's how I'm called to love others. Right? That's the purpose of the, the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, we saw hesed remaining, where Ruth chose to remain with her mother-in-law Naomi even though the going was about to get real tough even though she had a justifiable out to go back to Moab she did not bail and leave her mother-in-law right so Hesed was that love from Ruth that remained with Naomi even though it was incredibly difficult and she knew it and then in chapter 2, we see Hesed from Boaz, who continues to give kindness on top of kindness, on top of kindness, on top of kindness. He met the minimum expectations, but that wasn't like, okay, cool, I'm done loving. That was the beginning, right? Boaz met the minimum expectations of love and then kept going on top of that and on top of that and on top of that. Generous kindness on top of one another. And then in chapter 3, we see that Hesed selflessly prefers the other first. This steadfast love that God has for you and me, and that you and I are called to then give to others, prefers the other first. So let's start looking in Genesis, or Genesis Ruth chapter 3. Right, so you've got um, Naomi, mother-in-law, right, and Ruth is her, her daughter-in-law, um, widows at this point, which we'll get to in just a second. And, and Boaz is the uh, family member of Naomi that has shown kindness to Ruth to allow her to, to gain food, okay? So verse one, Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? All right, so we see right now that the motivation for what's going to occur in chapter three it, the, the, the motivation behind what we're going to see as Naomi's plan is to seek rest for Ruth. That's the driving point for Naomi. Ruth, I, I want to seek rest for you. Now, what kind of rest are we talking about? She's like trying to get her a nap? Like, hey, you need to take a siesta? Like a two-hour rest break? You know, maybe you need to have a weekend off? You just need to go chill, watch a movie or something? Like, what, what kind of rest is she talking about Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 9. This is when Naomi's giving Ruth and Orpah the option to go back to Moab. And this is Naomi's prayer for Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 9. Let's go back to 8. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That Hebrew word there is hesed. May the Lord show you hesed, steadfast love. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Naomi's prayer for Ruth is that, they, that she will find rest in the house of her husband, that she will find security and protection and a future in the house of her husband. As a widow, we talked about this before, she was in a dire situation. In a patriarchal society, Right? Not necessarily prescribing what we should do, just describing the facts of the day. It was a patriarchal society. Women didn't work. Women didn't earn an income. Right? Women didn't you know, buy the house. Women, women took care of what was given to them, provided to them by their husband. And so if there's no husband, they have no source of income. They have no source of regular food. They have no protection. They were on a path to hunger and homelessness and eventual death, either by natural causes or because they were attacked and someone stronger took from them. That was the path that, that they would be set on. And so Naomi says, I'm praying for rest for you, that you will not be restless and anxious and that you will find a place of stability and security in the house of your husband. That's her prayer. 
She's, she's pushing her out of the nest. Hey, it's time for you to remarry. It's, t- it's time for you to get back out there. The, the path that you're on with me is not going to go well. It's time for you to find someone else that you can settle into. That you can be married with and have a family and a future and provision and protection with. That is Naomi's motivation for Ruth. So let me keep going. She says, Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. All right, what's going on here? Right? Naomi desires for her daughter-in-law, move on, remarry, find rest for yourself. And she says, hey, let's go, let's go knock on Boaz's door. Let's, why don't we go and check with Boaz? Why Boaz? Right? Why is Naomi proposing this plan with Boaz? If you go backwards, chapter 2, verse 20, when Ruth comes back from working all day with Boaz, and she's got, remember, she's got leftovers. Like, she's got so much food, and Boaz had given her so much kindness that she brings leftovers home to her mother, Naomi. And Naomi's like, dang, we got food for, for months, right? She, she's ecstatic because of Boaz's kindness. But also, she says at the end of verse 21, Naomi says to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. The Hebrew word for redeemer is goel. And the word goel is, can be translated kinsman redeemer. And that was a person who delivered his kin from difficult circumstances. A, a goel, a, a, a redeemer, is one who would deliver his family from difficult circumstances. All right, so let's get, some more, let's get some more historical context going on here. God gave instructions to Israel that, the, that when the, the, the man, the head of a household would die, his, his land, his possessions, his estates, his, his, really his whole business would pass on to his son. And then from his son, it would pass on to his son's son. And then his son's son's son. You know what I'm saying. I, I got lost in the sons, right? That, that all of the protection of the family, right, all the employment of the, the servants, all of the food, everything would pass from father to son to son to son to son to son to son and, and, and for all of eternity. That, that, was, that was the plan. But if the man died before having a son, a redeemer could come in, a close family member, and could marry the widow and continue on the family line. Redeem the family from destruction that was now set because the man died. And so you've got in this case, right, if you remember chapter 1, you've got Naomi is married to Elimelech, and they've got two sons, and they move to Moab, and it tells us that Elimelech dies, right? And so the head of their household has now died. The provider, the care of their family is gone, but... They had two sons, right? So, so they've got that, that lined up. Okay, cool. Elimelech's gone. Not cool, obviously, right? <laughs> bad, bad use of words. Elimelech dies, but don't worry. There's two sons who can carry on the family. They marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. The tragedy expands even further in that before they have any children, before they have sons, both of their husbands die. So Naomi loses Elimelech and then her two sons before any grandsons are born. That puts them on a path of destruction. They've got no heir to carry on the family line. They've got no man to provide for the family. They've got no man to run the estate. They've got no man to run the business and to continue providing for everyone. Eventually, Elimelech's estate and family will crumble, will fall apart, unless a redeemer comes in and redeems them from their poor circumstance. 
unless a family member comes in and buys back the land and marries the widow and produces offspring that can then pick back up the family line and heritage. You track, we, we follow in that? And so Naomi's excited for Boaz because he's showing Hesed lo- steadfast love to Ruth and he is a redeemer. He is a close family relative to Elimelech and if he were to choose to redeem the land and marry Ruth, then perhaps there is hope that the family heritage could continue. That a redeemer will come in and buy back what has been lost and will fix what is broken in this family line. So she's hopeful. She's excited for Boaz. And so she proposes this plan to Ruth, which is nothing shy of perhaps the boldest, most courageous, most vulnerable, and potentially risque plan that we see in Scripture. Here's her plan. Ruth, it's time for you to move on. You need to go take a shower. You need to put on some clean clothes. You need to spray on some perfume. You need to make yourself presentable. You need to go down the threshing floor and get yourself a man. Wasn't exactly those words, right? Don't quote that. But, but up to this point, right, Ruth and Boaz had been working together for a couple months, right, through the, the harvest season. And so they had time to interact, right? Boaz had already taken her into his table. They'd had conversation. But up to this point, right, Boaz sees Ruth in, historically, it'd be one of two outfits, either her work clothes or her grieving clothes, because she's still grieving her dead husband. Neither of which communicate, hey, I'm interested, right? Neither of which are like, hey, man, you want to talk? Right, so in Boaz's opinion, he's a redeemer, but, but what is he? he? He sees a grieving widow, and, and he sees someone who's, who's in her, her work, right? It's not something where he's, you know, thinking, hey, let me, let me try to make my move here, right? And so Naomi's like, hey, girl, it's time to move on. Like, we're going to put on some clean clothes. We're going to clean up, put on a little perfume. You, you're going to let it be known that you're interested, let it be known that a new day is, is coming. And, and I think more than anything, because what happens is actually in the middle of the night, pre-electricity, that's dark, right? And, and we see that Boaz doesn't recognize her. So it's not so much like, hey, you got to put on your best clothes because you're trying to like physically catch his eye. I think more so it, it's this, hey, hey, Ruth, it's time to move on. Right? It, it's time to move forward. Philippians 3 is a passage that I think about a lot where Paul says, like, we're straining forward to what lies ahead, and to do that, we've got to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. There, there comes a point when, and I'll speak to myself, when we've got to let the past be in the past, and we've got to move forward. Because if we're continuing to try and do this number, right, we're only slowing ourselves down from moving forward. Now, that doesn't mean like, okay, cool, I can just let my sins be in the past. Because if we don't ever confess and repent of our sins, we're just bringing those things along with us. They're not actually in the past. Right? We've got, we got to own that stuff. We've got to confess that stuff. We've got to sever that stuff. And then we've got to turn and fix our eyes on Jesus and move forward. Right? And so I think there comes that time where, where some of us need to hear, hey, it's time to throw off the old clothes. It's time to throw off the, the, the mourning and grieving clothes of what was. And it's time to look forward to what God has ahead of us. Man, some of us are just stuck in the past of shame and guilt. We've confessed our sin. We've repented of our sin. But we just still keep heaping that, keep throwing that shame and guilt on us. It's exactly what Satan wants. And Jesus is like, man, I paid for that. It's time to be free. Come on, let's go forward. Fix your eyes forward. That's been buried in the tomb. Quit holding on to it. Quit digging it up. And so I think more than anything, Ruth is just helping transition this. It's a new day. It's a new day. It's it's, it's a new day to move forward. And so Naomi's like, hey, let's get you dressed up. And then you're going to go down to the threshing floor because Boaz is going to sleep there. Right, he's going to eat and drink and be merry. I mean, that's what she says right there. Let the man eat his dinner. Let him have a glass of wine or two. You know, he's going to be feeling good. He's going to come, come lay down and go to sleep on the threshing floor. Because 
because men would oftentimes lay on the threshing floor by their harvest in order to protect it from being stolen. Right, and so they would be like, I'm sleeping right here. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm standing guard. And so Naomi knows Boaz will be sleeping on the threshing floor in front of his harvest in order to protect his harvest. You're going to get dressed up. You're going to smell good. You're going to go down there, and you're going to wait for him to lay down and go to sleep. And then Ruth, once he's asleep, you're going to go pull the blankets back, and you're going to hop in the bed with him. This is what's going on. You're going to hop in the bed with him, and you're going to lay down at his feet, and don't worry, he'll tell you what to do from there. I mean, just imagine if that's the plan, right? Come on, come on, ladies. Like, that's the, that's the dating advice you get. Hey, wait till he's asleep. And then, and then, and then go hop in bed with him, right? Like, that's, it's potentially all kinds of risque. On top of that, right, let's, let's start breaking this down a little bit. Many interpret this a, as Ruth initiating an illicit sexual encounter, right? So if you were to study this more, you're going to find many commentaries that believe that's what Ruth is doing. Why? The threshing floor was known to be a place of promiscuity. It was known to be a place where the men would work, they'd eat, they'd drink, they'd be merry, and then the ladies of the night would roll in to earn some money. Right, that was common knowledge of the threshing floor. Also, the, the word feet is oftentimes a euphemism referring to the man's Netherlands. Right? Again, just historical fact. So when you read this and you're like, okay, Naomi is sending Ruth to the threshing floor at night telling her to get in bed with a man and uncover his feet. What kind of feet are we talking about here, Naomi? Are we talking about like feet, feet? Or are we talking about feet? Like what are we talking? I'm just telling you how it is, right? This is the historical fact of Ruth. This is what is going on. We don't know yet, right? If we're just reading this, we're like, what is happening? We don't know yet. But let me just ask you, what would you do? Right? What, what would you do if it's like, hey, time to move on, okay. And then someone's like, and that's where you should go. Like, that's who you should move on with, and here's the plan, and it's like, this is X-rated, you know? Like, like we're, you just got to put ourselves in these shoes. How would you respond? What would, what would be the motivation for your decision-making? Why would you do what you would do? Now, I'll say this. I don't believe there's anything inappropriate happening here. I don't believe this is an illicit sexual encounter, and there's multiple reasons why. One, it just doesn't fit with the story of Ruth, right? If you're watching this movie, and, and you see, right, the main characters and the storyline being devel developed and built, right, and they're, they're characters of integrity and, and character, right? You, you see that in chapter 2. You see in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, right, where Boaz says, you know, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, right? That they are people of of character, this scene, it just wouldn't make sense. And, like, imagine that movie, like, why is that sex scene there? Like, it, does, it doesn't make sense, right? When you just read it practically. Secondly, we'll see this later, right? But, but once Boaz discovers, the next thing he does is pray a prayer of blessing over Ruth. My rule of thumb if you're able to stop whatever you're doing and have a genuine prayer with God, it's probably okay to be doing. Right? How far is too far? Are you okay praying to God right now? Nope. Probably too far. Just a guess. Right? How, how, how much is too much? Are you okay praying to God right now? Nope. It's probably too much. Boaz is able in the moment to pray blessing over her to God, right? His heart is toward her. I, I don't see that as like, man, this is some scandalous, like, you know, illicit ordeal. No, I, I think that it's, that it literally means 
his feet. I think that it's a sign of submission, a sign of presenting her request. I want to come under your authority, under your protection, under your leadership. I want to find rest with you. Right? That's, that to me makes much more plausible sense than, than an alternative interpretation of that. And so you've got Ruth, and she goes, and she does all that Naomi says to do, right? She follows the order. She goes and she watches Boaz. He's eaten in verse 7. He's drunk. His heart is merry. He's gone to lie down at the end of the heap grain. Then she came in softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down, right? She, she did what Naomi said. At midnight, the man was startled. Understatement of the year, right? <laughs> I can, I can tell you how many times I've gone to bed alone and woke up in the middle of the night with a woman in there. Zero. Right? Like, that just doesn't happen. I'm going to be a little alarmed if I'm, I'm going to sleep. I'm a bachelor, and all of a sudden, there's a woman in bed with me, right? Yeah, startled. I'd say so, right? So he's startled that there's a woman sleeping at his feet. He turned over, and behold, <laughs> I love that. Like, the behold is like, it's like, and behold, a woman. Like, I, I just think it's such an understatement, right? Like, just imagine, the, come on, put yourself in that scene. Such an understatement. Yeah, startled, of course. Behold, a woman laid his feet. He said, who are you? Right, it's dark. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Right, R Ruth is, man, this is bold. This is, this is forward, Right? Like, th this, is, this is like, hey, I'm going to put myself out here. There's no questions asked. I mean, I, I'm interested. Like, I want to I talk some more. Let's hang out. Like, this is, this is a bold and vulnerable move. Like, let's talk about how vulnerable that is. I mean, for all you single folks, I mean, just asking somebody on a date is vulnerable. That fear of rejection Right, like what? What if they look at me and they're like, mm -mm. you know, like it's a it's a, it's a vulnerable. She's hopping in bed with the dude, laying at his feet. Like this is a position of incredible risk and courage and vulnerability. How is this going to go? Right, I, I said this last week. We oftentimes read the Bible and just read through it, and we don't actually realize these are real people, real scenarios, a real event. This is wild. Like, this is, this is stuff movies are made of. How is this going to go? And she says, in case, you know, the intentions weren't clear by this point, she says, hey, I'm Ruth, your servant. You remember me. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What is she saying there? Hey, Boaz, will you marry me? Like, I know that the English doesn't say that, but that is what she is saying. Boaz, will you marry me? Not just, hey, I'm Ruth, like, help me out. Boaz, will you redeem me? Will you buy back our family? Will you step in and fix what is broken? Will you marry me? In Ezekiel 16, right, we, we see the same terminology used. Is it up there? Because it's taking me a while. Okay. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. It's a... It's an image. It's, it's, a, it's a proposal. Even today, in Jewish culture, they will literally throw the corner of their robe over a woman as a sign of betrothal, as a sign of you are coming under my protection. You are coming under my security. You are becoming one with me. You are mine. And it's Ruth saying this to him. It's Ruth asking him to marry her. What a, what a bold and humble posture. Look, we, we live in 2022 in a far more progressive culture than here. 
right? And, and how many ladies are thinking of the day when you're going to propose to a guy? My guess is the dream you're thinking of is the day when some guy would propose to you, right? That, that's just, right, it's, it's still, you know, it's fine, you're going to propose, great, it's, but it's still culturally rare for the, for the woman to propose to the man in a far more progressive culture. That's in part why I think this event happens at night, because Naomi was, was calling her to a risky and culturally rare action a really vulnerable position you're going to go propose to him no one did that and I think that's in part why Naomi plans it to be at night also if he does reject her it gives even some more anonymity right where, where they, can, they can just let her go with dignity right that everybody doesn't have to know that she A put herself out there and then B he rejected her and so that's why I think in part it's at night, but Ruth is coming and she is the one proposing to Boaz. And now here is the key verse of what we have today. His response. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Right, that doesn't sound like a sexually explicit response. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Verse 10 is our key verse of where we see Hesed in action. Right? He says, this last kindness. Any, any guesses what the Hebrew word there is for kindness? Let's get the guttural mark. There it is. Great. Hesed. This last demonstration of steadfast love. Hey, Ruth, may the Lord bless you. This last demonstration of Hesed is even greater than the first. What was her first demonstration? Chapter 1. Where she remained with Naomi, even though she had an out. She chose to continue to give that love, and he says, this one's even greater. Well, what's this one? What is this act of, of hesed? He says, you've come to me to be your redeemer rather than going after the younger or the richer. Remember verse one. What was the motivation for this event? Naomi wants Ruth to find rest, right? That's what verse one said. Hey, Ruth, it's time for you to, to move on and find rest with a husband. What Boaz is saying is that Ruth flipped it. And instead of pursuing how she would want to find rest, what would be most compatible for her, she pursued Naomi's rest before her own. Because in marrying a redeemer, in marrying Boaz, who was probably twice her age, she chose what would bring rest for Naomi rather than marrying someone else that would not bring rest to Naomi. Ruth had every legal right to go marry whomever she wanted. She could go find somebody that she just hit it off with. She could go find some young, handsome man that she was just attracted to. She could go find somebody that was just rolling in the dough and that her life could be set on different ways. And Boaz says, the kindness you're showing here is that you're thinking first of Naomi and that's why you're coming to me rather than thinking first of yourself and doing what makes sense to you. How many of us, when facing decisions, think of others before ourselves? How, how many of us make decisions based on what would prefer another than what we prefer how many of us are making life decisions like a spouse right thinking through okay how does this prefer someone else and it's not that Boaz is a, is a bad man like Ruth is going to find rest she's going to be taken care of she's going to be blessed but the scripture makes it clear that that is not her priority her priority is is a redeemer because a redeemer provides rest for Naomi she flips the preference Hey, Ruth, go find rest. 
She says, I'll go find a rest for you. And then the rest for me will follow. Hesed selflessly prefers others. It, it puts others before my own interest. And this is what we're called to as well. If you flip over to Philippians chapter 2, or I think the verses are up here. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Steadfast love is a posture of humility. Considering others more significant than self. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's a C.S. Lewis quote. Don't, don't quote me on that. Right? Humility is not you know, becoming a floor mat and thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. Right? It's thinking of others be before yourself. Right? If you just become a floor mat, then you're actually going to get trampled on, and, and you're no longer the best version of yourself to give away to others. Right? Self-care and, and personal health, mental health, physical health, those are good things to seek after. But even with that, why are we seeking health? Why am I seeking mental health? Why am I seeking physical health? Is it for myself? Is it for my own affirmation? Is it for my own feelings? Or is it so that I can be the best version of myself to give to others? What is our motivation for why we do what we do? Ruth's motivation was Naomi's rest. That's steadfast love. That's a love that considers the interest of others. And we are called by scripture, if we follow Jesus, this isn't an option. Right, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, the Bible says he is our king. This is his command. We don't get to decide, like, ah, you know, I'm a, not, not today. Nope. Do nothing from selfish ambition. So let's just start thinking through life, right? Let's talk about work. How do we approach work? Are we approaching work based on how I can climb the chain, how I can be recognized, how I can get bonuses? None of those are bad things, but is that what we're going first for? Or are we thinking, wild thought, how, how do I perform so that my boss gets a better bonus? How, how do I perform so that my coworker, man, it just shines? Right, how, how do I perform so that yeah, perhaps I do get a greater income, but be, I can just give that away. I can care for this need over here. Right, why? What is our motivation for what we do? Talk about home. Man, I think the people we are most selfish with are the people we are closest to, right? The people that we, we love the most are often the ones that we just don't, we just, we don't want to do it. You know, but what if we're looking at our, our roommates or our spouses or our kids and we're making decisions through the lens and the filter of how do I prefer you over me? I mean, there's a lot of dishes here. Okay. Who wants to do them? Nobody. Right? Okay, well, what if I choose to do the dishes for you? Right? What, what about sexual expectation? What if my thoughts for the sexual expectation is how do I please you rather than how do I get pleasure from you? Or what about with our, our kids? Well, what if I'm like, hey, I want to I set you up for success more than I care about my own success? Right, so in our homes, with our loved ones, what's the motivation for why we do what we do? And, and let's be honest, this is where for me it starts to break down because I just get selfish. I just get tired. I mean, we can just keep going with our, our money. What, why do we spend the money the way that we spend our money? Is it for our own gain or is it for others? Are we thinking through the lens of preferring others first, our future? Let's be honest, we all have a dream and a plan of how the future is going to go. But are we setting that plan for the future based on my desires, my preference, what I want? Or, or are we considering, man, what future is best for others? How can I leverage and live my life to prefer others, to glorify God? The, the steadfast love that we see from Ruth is preferring the rest of Naomi over her own. 
She's, that's, her, that's Ruth's motivation, is finding rest for Naomi first. And the Bible calls us to do nothing from selfish ambition. Right? Just start filtering through your life. Every moment. Why do you come to church? Do you come to church to get something, or do you come to church to give something? Right? Why, why, do we, why do we serve others? Do we serve others for our own recognition, or do we serve others in order to lift them up? Or we can just start thinking through every aspect of life, and steadfast love, hesed, prefers others. Now, how in the world do we do this? Because I'll be the first to admit, man, 30 minutes from now, I'm going to subconsciously be putting myself first. Right? Like, I think half the time, we don't even think about it. We're just, if we stopped and we're like, why did I do that? Ultimately, it's probably for, for myself, right? Like, how do, we, how do we do this? Why? Why would we do this? Why would we humble ourselves? And so we keep reading in Philippians 2. This is where we'll end. Well, we get the command, do nothing from selfish ambition. And humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, this mind, this posture of humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Huge phrase. We'll come back to it. Who, though he was in the form of God, though he was the top dog, he was at the top of the food chain, he had everything, he is God. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself. Now the translation says to, he let go of his status. He let go of his rights. Y'all, can I be honest? Where I am most prideful is when I think I'm right. Scratch that. I'm most prideful when I know I'm right. <laughs> you know? Here's the crazy thing, though. I can know I'm right, and the other person can be right, too. game changer who's going to let go of their rights am I going to let go of my right in order to prefer someone else's right I think we should go this way I think this is best that's right Stephanie thinks we should go that way she thinks that's best she's right All right. <laughs> who's digging their heels in to be right Who's humbling themselves to let go of what is rightfully theirs? That's what Jesus did. He is rightfully king of kings. He is rightfully lord of lords. He is rightfully in heaven and on his throne. And yet he willingly let go of his rights and emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And he was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The posture of Jesus is that he chose to follow the will of God and humble himself beneath us in order to lift us up. Now that's one thing if you and I are good people, right? If you and I are like deserving of it, but the Bible says that we are wickedly rebellious towards him, right? That even on our best day, we're sinfully rebellious towards him, and yet Jesus in humility humbles himself to come and to prefer us. He let go of his rightful position in order to come and serve us, right? And he, he comes, and he stoops down, and he's washing our feet of the dirt that we just walked through, right? And he's washing our feet, and over here, right, we're just kicking up more dirt, and so he washes that foot, and over here, we're kicking up more dirt, and he washes that foot, he just continues to serve us and to lift us up, even though we selfishly are like, hey, you know what? Forget you. I got my own way to go. And yet he pursues us in love. He knew when he left heaven, that's what we were going to do. Romans 5 eight says that God demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned ourselves up. Not after we came to some revelation that we need God. No, no, no. While we were still giving him the middle finger, going our own way to live our own life, that's when Jesus came and died for us. And we just got to embrace that. We got to come to grips with that's what we did. That's, that's, that's who we are. And Jesus humbles himself 
to serve us by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What happened on the cross? He took my full record of sin, my sin against him. He took it on himself. Right? It's one thing to stand up for someone who's good. It's another thing to stand up for someone who's actively sinning against me. And Jesus humbles himself and he takes our sins on the cross so that we can be free of our sin, so that we can be made new to live with God forever. Right? He buries those sins in the tomb with himself and then he rises from the dead and he leads the way to new life. Like, that's humility. And the wild thing is, some of us still reject him. And yet he still did it. Right? That is hesed, steadfast love, preferring another before self. If you've trusted Christ, we are the generous recipients of that love. We have received the humility of Jesus to come and to wash our sins away and to give us new life. And now we are called to follow in his way and to love others the same way he loved us first. Right? We're just called to do for others what he has already done for us. And the wild thing is, go back to that phrase, this mind of humility, verse 4, is yours in Christ Jesus. When we trust Christ, he gives us his spirit. We're actually able to live that way. We're actually able to do it. What it comes down to is do we trust that following his way is good? The reason I don't obey him when it comes down to it, I'm just skeptical of if it's actually going to work out for me. Is this actually going to be better? Right, is this, if I do, we're going to do what we think is better, 10 times out of 10. Every time. That's how we're made. If we think right is better, we're going right. If we think left is better, we're going left. So the reason I don't obey him is that in my soul, I'm like, I'm not convinced that it's better. But if I actually think humility is better, that's what I'll do. Do I trust him? Do I trust that steadfast love, putting an, the, another before myself, is actually better to the glory of God and to the good of those around me? That was the model of Jesus. He wanted to obey the Father, and he wanted to serve us. It was good enough for him sure as heck should be good enough for us, but do we trust him? It's there for us in Christ. He's given it to us and he's empowered us to live that way. Will we follow him? Will we trust him and follow him? Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.